Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. It is Valentine's week, but there doesn't seem to be all that much love in the air out there this morning, despite the massive loving that was the BAFTAs last night. We'll be talking a little bit about that. Uh, apparently, the favourite won a lot of awards, uh, but we will get into that later on. There were some pretty cringeworthy uh, speeches, an awful lot of virtue signalling. Uh, at one point, I put a tweet out saying there's so much virtue signalling going on that actually they might as well have seven four flags to do it with. This morning, though, we will be setting out the agenda for what is actually important in this country. And guess what? Uh, it is not Theresa May. It is not Jeremy Corbyn, despite the big Tom Bauer book all about what a terrible, dreadful, awful man he is. It's not even Brexit or Nigel Farage forming a new political party, which up to now doesn't seem to be making much traction. It's education and the way we actually should be doing it properly in this country. What I don't understand is why people don't realise that the only way forward is to make the realisation that children are not all the same. They don't learn the same, uh, they don't understand the same, and they certainly do not uh, uh, have the same capabilities at the same age. What we need to do is to realise that actually separating them up on the grounds of ability is the way to help absolutely everyone. And that's why uh, that means we have to embrace grammar schools and that's why, thankfully, that's what the government is finally doing. They're saying there's going to be 3,000 more grammar school places. I think that is a great idea. Worth celebrating. 0344 499 1000. Coming up a bit later on, uh, we'll have some Valentine's tips for you and we'll find out why losing all the insects in the world might actually not be such a bad thing. And we can claim another small victory for the Independent Republic because it looks as though, since we spoke about it last week, HS2 might actually hit the buffers uh, because it's going to cost over £100 billion, making it, believe it or not, the most expensive railway in the known universe. 0344 499 1000. You know it makes sense. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. 
So there's an awful lot of things wrong with our school system. One of the things that's wrong with our school system is that it's been messed about with in and out for years and years and years. Our successive governments have had different ideas. Successive education secretaries have had different ideas. Successive uh, governments have changed the curriculum. Successive local authority governments have changed the way uh, that special needs education is dealt with. Special needs education is now turned into an absolute goldmine for an awful lot of schools. Academies have been set up. Businesses are being run. Things are going very badly wrong in our education sector, I'm afraid. Lots of people are moving to places so they can put their kids into private schools. Lots of people are moving away uh, from places because they can't put their kids into the school at all. Many, many more children than ever before are being homeschooled. There's an awful lot of problems going on. And it now turns out this morning uh, that the government has put its hands up and decided that the only way forward is to have grammar school education. Because at the very least, when you have grammar school education, at least some people get a decent education. Not every Everybody needs a decent education, not everybody needs to go to university, and not everybody needs to be treated the same, because quite frankly, that is absolutely and utterly ridiculous. 0344 499 1000. I will hold my hands up right now and say that I went to a grammar school. Uh, I had to take an 11 plus exam to get into that grammar school. I wasn't particularly academically able. However, uh, it did give me a very good grounding. Uh, there were three streams in the school. I started off in the top one, I finished off in the middle one, uh, and the people who were in the bottom one uh, probably didn't go to university anyway. But it was a much better system than one we have now, which appears to not really teach very much of anything. Let's talk to Michael Pike, uh, who's from the Campaign for State Education, and see what he makes of it all. Michael, a very good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Now, my understanding is that you're not in favour of grammar schools, and um, you want the system to be presumably the way it is now. Can you tell me why that is? Well, those are false alternatives. Uh, no, I'm not in favour of uh, selective education. Um, and no, I don't want the system to be the way it is now. Right. So what's wrong with the system the way it is now? It's fragmented. It's based on... It's underfunded. Our teachers are not adequately educated and trained. Um, our curriculum is out of date. Our children are the most over-examined in the entire Western world. Um, there, I mean... I, <laughs> Maybe it would be easier and to one, put... One thing you said, I, I, one thing you said I, I, I disagree with, and I mean, it isn't true that, any, any, that the education system regards all children as the same. It is true that special education is an absolute mess. You were dead right about that. Um, well, let me tell you my own experience, OK, because I've raised children uh, over a period of time, uh, which is so long that I don't really want to tell you exactly how long it is. But I've got oh, yeah, children. I've got children from the age of 28 down to the age of 12. Right. And yeah. so I've seen various different incarnations of, of, of schooling. Yeah. I've seen various different um, uh, local authorities running things for, yeah. for good or ill. But what I can tell you now uh, is that where my two children are in a secondary school in Sussex uh, is that basically it doesn't appear to be run like an educational establishment. You know, my son, for example, the youngest one, supposed to be learning Spanish. I was speaking to him at the weekend about some Spanish homework. Yeah. They haven't actually taught him any Spanish, right? They're, yeah. talking him, they're talking to him about Spanish. They're telling him why Spanish is interesting. They're telling him uh, some things about Spain, but they're actually not teaching him the actual language which seems to me to be completely and utterly, you know, sort of counterintuitive, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, my other son, who's been learning German, also can't speak any German. 
because they're teaching them about Germany, but they're not actually teaching them the language. And one of the things that people always say is that when we see people on the in, on the European Union talking about Brexit, you know, they're all talking in English. They learn English in Europe in a way that we do not learn languages in this country. I don't know why uh, we can't do it the way they do it. That's one thing. The second thing is, is my older son, who's now 14, tells me that there's an awful lot of people in his school now who are brought in because they've been excluded from loads of other schools. Now, I can only assume that they're doing that because of some um, sort of financial in, uh, uh, sort of, you know, incentive. And that seems to me to be wrong because th- these are the bad kids who are disrupting everything for everybody else. Yeah. 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 Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not disagreeing with any of that, but I think uh, there, there, there's a bit of a problem trying to base a, a general argument on personal experience. I mean, well, that's only part of my argument, Michael, but because I have no, no, personal experience, I think, worth, I think it's um, worth I mentioning, mean, right? I, I give you my personal experience. Okay, go on. My, my, you talked about foreign languages. My grandson, who has just finished at a comprehensive school, won an international debating, a national debating competition in German, and uh, his team beat uh, beat a leading a leading private school. Okay. So you know we, we can quote personal example, but that's not the issue. Go on. What was the other thing? Well, it kind of is in a way because what you've just established and you've just actually illustrated is that it's so hit and miss that your son went to a decent state school. My kid's school no, no, is. This is uh, my grandson. Sorry. Oh, your grandson. Sorry, went to a decent state school. Uh, the, my, the, the school that my kids go to is not particularly bad, but it's being made worse with every single year that they've been there. Yeah. Right. I, I now, agree, now, what my point is, my point about that, to do Michael, with the issue you raise, which is whether or not we should have selective education. No, it's got nothing to do with that, but it is part of the, all, the, the all-consuming argument that parents are consumed with and that parents want to talk about because parents Absolutely. entrust, I, 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 look, parents I mean, entrust <laughs> the school with giving their children education because that's the way it's supposed to work. But at the moment, what I'm saying is that's not happening very well. No, no, you're right. I mean, our education system is a mess. And the other thing you said, which I completely agree with, is that for years and years and years, meddling politicians um, who are, wouldn't dream of doing this, well, actually, they have done it with the NHS, <laughs> but at least they wouldn't try and tell doctors how to actually op- operate in, in, in the, in the theatre, um, actually tell teachers exactly how to operate in the classroom. And the, these politicians have absolutely no idea what they're talking about. And... Uh, it seems to be one of these things where people feel they've got to come into this job, uh, make some kind of name for themselves and move on. So it's not surprising we're constant chopping and changing. So let's get down to serious business. Um, let's have a look at Kent. Uh, Kent's never, ever had comprehensive schools. Now, some of its secondary moderns call themselves comprehensive schools, but they're not. They've never had anything but the old system that you and I were brought up the in. The grammar school system. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Now, if that... <laughs> If the results of that were so brilliant, you would you would expect that in Kent, you know, you, you have massively super educational results. But you don't. Every year, Kent is outperformed by the London Borough of Hackney. Now, the London Borough of Hackney, you know, is a hugely disadvantaged area, um, but it's got better schools. When you say outperformed, in what sense do you mean in, that? In, in, in its examination results. Right. Well, you've just every, said every we... Year, you've just told me that we examine children too much. Oh, we do, we do, no. But all so I'm how is that a yardstick, then? No, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. All I, all I'm, I'm hanging saying... on, Michael, I'm on the other end of the phone. <laughs> yeah, all right. Um, all I'm saying is that if, if, if these places like Kent and South Lincolnshire and Buckinghamshire, which have, which, have only, which have only ever had the old system, 
were, were so wonderful, we would all know about it. They'd be shouting it to the yeah, sky. Yeah, but surely, Michael, you are a, a man involved in the campaign for state education. You surely must realise that the one yardstick for measuring success is the exam results that the school gets. But it's not the only measure, is it? It is not the only measure, but the, 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 we, it's the only measure the government takes any notice. So you mentioned... Uh, excluded kids. One of the reasons schools exclude kids is they think it will damage their exam results. Um, and of course, if you, if you tell head teachers they're going to be sacked if their schools don't get... OK. Well, how do you explain, if that's the case, that they're being re-brought into the system uh, well, in the school that I'm talking about? It has a legal duty to find a school for them. It, it's a mess. Uh, I mean, I'm... I'm <laughs> is, there a, is there a financial inducement for schools to bring those kids in? Well, there might be, or it might be that local authorities simply... Ha- simply has no choice but to say we have a legal response duty to to educate this child what are the options and 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 in some cases they may think and they may be wrong um, well these particular kids are coming from a place called college central i don't know whether you know about that do you know about college central no it's a it's a place in eastbourne uh, where kids go when they've been excluded by more than four or five schools right yeah and and they then have a sort of a like what can only be described as, yeah. a, as a kind of a, a tipping off system where they then get redistributed to a certain type of school for whatever reason, I don't know. But the parents, one of the problems in, in, in life for me is that, you know, the schools are very secretive about what they do. The schools will never really share anything with the parents. They don't want to tell the parents anything, you know, and the system just doesn't work for me. And I mean, I know that there's a lot of things we're talking about here, many different things, but I just think that the grammar school system that I went through seemed to be much better structured. Not everybody who went to that grammar school went to university. Not everybody did brilliantly, but it was a much more kind of understandable system, for, I think, for parents because it was based upon you know, trying to give your child the best education they could get. And it seems to me that the current school system doesn't do that. Yeah, but only 20% of kids ever went to those schools. The rest were dumped off in secondary Well, no, modern. you say dumped off, but they went to secondary modern schools where they learned different skills and they learned yeah, well, different they trades. <laughs> well, they did. You know, I'm sorry, they did. You know. <laughs> you, you, need to look at, you need to look at the historical evidence to, to evaluate. Can I, can I make a new point? Yes. Because going around in circles... One, one of the things we, that's, that's not your job to say, that's my job to say. <laughs> one of the things we need to do when, discuss, when, when looking at these issues, yeah. and I, I completely agree with you that the education service in this country is, is, is a million miles short of yeah. where it needs to be. There's no argument about that. Yeah. We, need, we need to look at what, what countries with more successful education systems do. Right. And if you look at the ones that are the most successful ones in the world regularly, as measured by uh, international comparisons and so on. So countries like Canada, Japan, uh, Finland, Singapore, and uh, parts of China. I mean, it's difficult with China because it's, it's broken up into so many areas. Mm. But you look at all of the South Korea, you look at all of those countries, they don't have selection at 11. Singapore has some selection at 15. Um, most of them have no selection at all. They don't need to have selection because they've got a good system. Well, that's the sort of system we need. Yeah, well, why don't we have it? Well, because, well, <laughs> this is probably, uh, it's probably not got a lot to do with education. It's got a lot to do with politicians not wanting to, uh, not wanting to change the structure. Yeah. I mean, I have conversations with people who understand the NHS better than I do, and we always talk about how it would be a good idea to take the politicians out of the NHS and give it to a sort of a a commission, if you like, to make sure that the decision-making process was not uh, infected by any ideology. Could we we not do that with education? Well, we could. Uh, The problem is you have enormous vested interests in keeping not the details of the system as it is, but in keeping the structure as it is. Uh, There was a really interesting... A piece of research done last year at the LSE, 
by a guy called Aaron Reeves. Uh-huh. He, he looked at who's who for, for, for the whole of the last century and into this. And if you went to one of ten particular schools, you were 95 times more likely to end up in who's who yeah. that, than, the rest, than the rest of the population. I spent my entire life trying to avoid ending up in who's who, by the way, because I don't want right. to be in there. But, but the point is, is that there's a lot of reasons why we have an elitist society in this country, and it's not everything to do with education. It's got to do no, with a lot more other around. things. The way around. We have an elitist society, and and that is reflected in the education service. Mm. Yes, I think that's true. So you can't you can't have the tail wagging the dog. I don't think, Michael. But well, the, no, the reason that the reason that politicians won't introduce a, a world class education service, and we're not the only country where politicians have fail in this way. It's the same in a lot of Western Europe. Uh, is that they don't want to undermine the elitist nature of the society. Yeah. I mean, you you know, if you've been to, for example, one of the ten most famous, most historical public schools, even if you fail all your A-levels and, and, and don't achieve anything at all, you are still more likely to end up in who's who than if you went to yeah. a much better well, school. Well, to be honest, I don't think ending up in who's who is a particular badge of honour, no, no, to be but honest. No, what it tells you is how you get into the elite. Yeah, well, you don't really get into it. You're either in it or you're not in it. I think that's well, the problem. That, I think exactly. that's the point. Exactly. You're bored into so, it, so right? And most politicians now, I'm afraid, Michael, are so out of touch uh, with the real world because they have never worked in it. They have never had to do anything in it. They've always worked in the political world. You know, they have no clue. But, I mean, I, I don't even understand. Yeah, I don't understand why uh, we have had to have these academies set up, making schools into businesses, run by people who don't know how to run a business. No, why we outsource all of the, uh, you know, why, why do we outsource all of the catering? instead of cooking inside the schools. There's so much. I can't think of anything that's actually right with the system. Can you? No. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> well, there we are. And what, what do you make of uh, GCSEs uh, and whether they should be scrapped or not, well, according to Robert sure, Halford? Yeah. I mean, it, th- there is no leading country in the world, that, uh, apart from us, um, almost, who, who thinks that a, an exam which was designed for school leavers at 16 mm. should still be going on, costing, you know, hundreds of millions of pounds a year. Yeah. Um, and causing masses of anxiety and neurosis to children, um, that this should be going on when children are not leaving school at 16. Yeah, right. Because and now they, they stay on, don't they? And, and those who do leave school at 16, the employer doesn't give a damn about their GCSE results. Right. So exactly. That be scrapped. Exactly. Now, listen. Here's. I'm going to have. I'm, I'm being told I have to rush off now because okay. I'll be keeping you on. But it's been very enjoyable, Michael. <laughs> what I need to know you. from you: Can you ta- can you answer me in less than thirty seconds? What the campaign for state education would like to see, and what would you like to see done now? Well, what we'll actually done now is, uh, is is certainly the sort of thing you were talking about earlier: setting up a, a non-political body that is based on expertise and uses evidence um, to, to 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 reorganise the system. And in the long term, what we'd like to see is the kind of education system that they have in countries such as Finland, such as Canada, which are not doing badly in world terms, um, such, such as Japan, where all this, where, you know, where the schools don't exist in order to preserve privilege. Indeed, absolutely right. Michael, thank you very much indeed for spending time with us. Michael Pike, their campaign for state education. We don't agree on a lot, but we do agree on the fact that the system is broken and it doesn't work. I want to hear your stories because you'll have kids in the system. You'll have been in the system yourself uh, and I want to know what it was like. 0344 499 1000 is the number. This is Talk Radio. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, there are many reasons not to talk about Brexit. We were just hearing uh, from uh, uh, Annan Menon earlier on in the last hour about how Thursday might still be a reasonably meaningful day, even though there might not be an actual meaningful vote about what it is that we're going to do Brexit-wise. But Brexit is an issue in this particular story we're talking about here because the new immigration rules post-Brexit will say that a foreign worker must earn £18,600 to apply to bring their spouse to the UK. The minimum income requirement to bring over one child is 22,400 with an additional 2,400 for each child thereafter. Now it turns out an awful lot of Commonwealth troops are asking for permission to bring their kids here but they don't make enough money uh, to qualify so they're having to get second jobs and that seems to me to be entirely ridiculous. Surely there should be exceptional cases made for people who are in the armed forces if nothing else. Let's talk to Tom Tugendhat, uh, Tory MP for Tunbridge and Chair of the Commons Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Tom, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Morning, Mike. Thanks very much for the uh, for having me on. Not at all. Now I know that you and uh, um, uh, Mr. Mercer MP were having a bit of an exchange on Twitter, which is kind of how I spotted this yesterday. Uh, because you, no, I'm you... glad somebody's following me. <laughs> well, so um, you know, tell us about uh, how you came across this story and and how it's come about, really, because I know that you know it's all very difficult trying to work out all the various niceties about Brexit and everything else. But, you know, surely it seems to me that if you're fighting for the British Armed Forces, no matter what country you're from, uh, you should have the right to be here. Yeah, look, this, is, this isn't the Brexit story. This is, uh, this is a judgment story. <clears throat> because the, the, the truth is, we all know that the government's a huge organisation. It applies very large rules across hundreds of thousands of people. Mm. OK, we understand that. But we also understand that politics is about judgment. It's about choosing when those rules don't apply. And I would have thought that Commonwealth soldiers who are over here, uh, who are genuinely risking their lives when we order them abroad, uh, to serve our nation and to defend our values and our, our interests, uh, you know, that's one of those moments where the judgment surely is, let's make an exception here. Yeah, well, indeed. And you would think that that could be possible. But is it possible? I mean, can you change the rules as they stand at the moment? Well, the government can do anything you like. The government writes the rules. So, yes, the government can change the rules, and I think it should. And, and this is one of those moments where, you know... I mean, I had the great privilege of serving in Iraq and Afghanistan along some of the finest uh, Commonwealth soldiers from uh, Canada and uh, South Africa and uh, Ghana. And I mean, I can go on. Quite a lot of Fijians as well, actually, who are incredibly brave. In fact, there's a, there's a couple of Fijians who 
quite rightly have won uh, very, very high awards for gallantry as well as others. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is one of those moments where you just got to look at it and go, come on, guys. Well, exactly. I mean, we had the campaign that Joanna Lumley spearheaded about the Gurkhas, which was very successful and ended up getting them sort of where they wanted to be. Are you, um, are you suggesting I'm as good looking as Joanna Lumley? Well, I'm not suggesting you're message. even as good of an actress as she is either. But no, nevertheless, well, I, think that's, I think that's true. <laughs> nevertheless, I mean, this is a very it's, it's a great cause. I mean, the one thing that does unite an awful lot of people in this country is is that we treat our armed forces as well as they should be treated. And, and quite often we fall short of that uh, just with our own homegrown soldiers, don't we? Yeah, look, I think that's right. And, you know, it's one of the things that, that I noticed after serving the army. It's one of the things that got me into politics was that um, I don't think we look after our own well enough. And, and that's, you know, what's interesting about that is that actually the army is an incredible social ladder for many people. There's lots of people from across the country who come from either, you know, the most privileged or the least privileged backgrounds in the country who learn uh, much more about our country from, from the armed forces than they do in any other uh, way. And it brings, it brings our nation together in many ways and it, and it helps us. Uh, to see the opportunities that are possible and the and therefore to see where there are moments that where those opportunities are lacking so for me you know things like you know apprenticeships why, why am i passionate about apprenticeships mm. because i've seen what the army does to transform lives and i just don't believe that the army should be the only way in which lives are transformed but i also see the army as a sort of an engineer of, of social fairness yeah. so when i see things like this about commonwealth soldiers being uh, effectively cut out of a right that any British soldier should expect, which is the ability to live with their family, with their wife and kids or husband and kids, um, you know, then I think we've got to say no. I well, quite. Wrong. And also, we are living in a changing world, aren't we? The environment, uh, both both sort of domestically and, and internationally, is changing. I mean, speaking of which, Gavin Williamson, uh, as I was saying, was just speaking there a little while ago, talking about why Britain's new aircraft carrier is going to be sent to China's backyard uh, in a show of strength, which a lot of people will say, well, hang on a second, what are you doing that for? But he's basically making the point that, you know, the Russians and the, and the Chinese are kind of flexing their muscles and we must be part of an allied kind of force uh, to show them that they can't just do what they like. Well, look, I, I wouldn't call it a show of strength. I'd call it a show of support. I mean, we've got tons of allies in the area, um, not least, of course, the Australians and New Zealanders, but also the Japanese and mm. many others. And, and so what we're doing is we're going down there and showing them that we're, we're, you know, we're properly global power and we're there to support them. It's not a show of strength against anyone, I would say. I'd say it's just there to support uh, some extremely close allies and to reiterate something that I think we all know that we're an international power and, uh, and we're willing to... to well, he's, he's using world. slightly stronger language than you are, though, I have to say. Well, he may be, but he speaks for himself. <laughs> well, he is a Defence Secretary, after all. Um, exactly. but, but what about the uh, uh, the use of aircraft carriers and the, and the way we are currently uh, in the world in terms of, you know, a lot of people say we shouldn't really be the world's policemen anymore, we can't really afford to do it, we haven't really got the wherewithal, we haven't got the means, we haven't got the planes, we haven't got the people, we haven't got the manpower or indeed the woman power. Well, look, I, I don't think we are talking about being the world's policemen. And, you know, we were just talking about Commonwealth soldiers, and as we said, many of them came from Fiji, and this, this aircraft carrier is heading around there. And, you know, if we can't go and support those who uh, are such good Commonwealth uh, friends that they uh, support our armed forces, then, frankly, you know, we, we need to think again as well. I mean, you know, this is, this, is, uh, this is the UK doing what we do best, which is standing by our friends and allies, being uh, a trusted uh, broker for many, and, and being a real supporter for the international... Uh, rules-based system, as it's called, that has kept us prosperous and, and, and peaceful for the last, well, not completely, but broadly speaking, for the last 70 yeah. years. Well, I was talking to uh, Colonel Bob Stewart not that long ago when we were last down in Westminster, and I asked him whether he thought that post-Brexit and post the leaving of the European Union that our defences were in any great mortal terror, and he said absolutely not. In fact, quite the reverse. 
Well, look, I think, I think actually, funny enough, Brexit is one of those moments, and, you know, people have their different views on this, um, but uh, it's one of those moments where it's reminding us what we've got to be if we want to be serious about this. You know, for many years we had the, um, you know, depending on how you look at it, the suffocation or the warm embrace, depending on your perspective, of the European Union, and we've now got to stand up and, and make sure that our policies count for something. And I'm afraid that means we've got to spend a bit more. We've got to spend a bit more on defence. We've got to spend a bit more on foreign affairs and we've got to coordinate better we've got to do stuff better we've got to make sure that our aircraft carriers and our and our embassies um you know not just aircraft carriers of course but troops training our you know all kinds of ships uh, work better to support our interests around the world and i think that's what this you know this uh, trip out past uh, south china sea is, is is really important for because what it does is it reminds uh, not only the world actually but us too that we have a responsibility here to ourselves. If you want to make Global Britain mean something, you need to invest in it. This isn't going to come cheap, but it does, but it will pay its dividends. No, of course. And it is very easy to be consumed and, and subsumed, in a way, by everything that goes on around the European Union and all the noise and fury and meaningful votes and meaningless votes. Uh, but you're introducing a bill, a 10-minute bill, I think it is, uh, tomorrow, a 10-minute rule bill, I should say, uh, on something which is really rather more important and, in a way, affects a lot more people sort of directly than any kind of Brexit will. Well, look, I think it does. This is about um, a family uh, who I'm incredibly privileged to represent uh, and their, their baby, Tony. And Tony, they adopted him when he was only a few months old. Mm. And the reason they adopted him is because um, he had been horribly abused by his birth parents. I don't like using the term real parents because his real parents are those that love him and are caring yes. for him now. The, the people who, who gave birth to him... Um, looked after him for a few weeks and well sorry they didn't look after him for a few weeks and in the time he was in their care um they beat him so badly uh, that his legs were shattered his hands were shattered and uh, eventually the doctors couldn't save his legs and so very sadly he 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 won't uh, he doesn't have any legs but the um but the his real parents have then started a campaign and they got in touch with me because of an extraordinary decision where uh, initially the cps the crown prosecution service weren't going to prosecute his birth parents because uh, they were such, you know, well, they were so unsuitable, if, yeah. as it were. They were, they, you know, that they thought that the defence would have been too easy. Mm. I'm very glad that, um, that that Paula got in touch with me, and uh, and I did uh, I, I did write to the Crown Prosecution Service, and I'm very glad that we got that decision changed. And they both got 10 years in prison. But what's extraordinary is that these two have got 10 years in prison when, frankly, they should have been getting life. Yeah. You know, to beat a child so badly that it's a miracle that they survived. Mm. Initially, they thought poor Tony was going to die. You know, to beat him so badly that that is, that's what happens. I mean, you know, 10 years doesn't strike me as, as the right sentence. It's just, it's just not enough. It's really and not. What, and the problem is as well, Tom, that, that an awful lot of mistakes are made in this area. And I know that's very difficult. And social workers have a great, uh, uh, a terrible time trying to track some of these ghastly parents. And luckily, there's there's not too many of them. But whenever we do hear of these awful cases, um, you know, there's always something that's gone wrong somewhere along the line. Yeah. Look, I'm not blaming social workers here. I'm really not, because um, I think what we've got to do here is is, is focus on on the amazing um success of uh, the foster uh, team and the, and the adoption team finding uh, the Hudgels in Kings Hill who have been just fantastic parents. I mean, just, you know, all you could dream of. Yeah. And and I think that is that is what we've got to celebrate. But at the same time, we've got to remember that we as a society have a responsibility uh, to stand up for the most vulnerable. And if that isn't Tony, I don't know who it is. Right. That is incredible. So how soon um, will this kind of business uh, be, be introduced if your bill gets passed tomorrow? 
Well, tomorrow is the first stage, so so let's not let's not be uh, let, let's not be too excited that it will make change tomorrow. But it's a way of putting pressure on the government. And just so you know, I've already spoken to the uh, prisons minister, and um, you know he's receptive to the idea. I mean, he's he's raised various issues which you'd expect him to raise um, about uh, sentencing and so on. And, and yeah, that's fine. I would expect him to do so. But what I want to do is I want to see this changed because I think it's just wrong that uh, child cruelty legislation that leaves kids so badly, uh, when, when kids have been so badly injured, it doesn't, doesn't allow for a stiffer sentence. Now, this is a very, very unusual case. So look, let's, not, let's not think for a moment that this will be, you know, reams of people uh, lining up for long sentences. It won't. Most child cruelty cases, uh, well, sadly, there are far too many of them, but most of them are minor and people get about two years. This is for truly exceptional circumstances like this case. And what about the rules that are then put in place on people like that in terms of them having other children? Because quite often you hear of them, you know, having other children. I know it's slightly more difficult question as to whether you can stop people from having kids. But, I mean, if, yeah, you're, if you're so appalling a parent that you, you think beating up a child to that extent is a good thing, then should you really have the right to have any more? Well, I, you know, I think that there's a there's a real question there. Sadly, you know, well, not sadly, but I mean, you know, the, the state doesn't have the ability to stop people having kids. Um, that's not one of the, you know, one of the things we can do. But I do think that it. But um, you have the right to stop stop them from being parents. You have the right to take the kids away. You do, and that's and that's what I was going to say. What it does is it puts a huge um, amount of work and effort onto the hands of social services to yeah. make sure that they're very quick in um, looking after protecting and, and in these cases protecting normally means removing mm. uh, the children uh, from from those people and it, it's incredibly sad i mean i'm you know there's, there's no nobody wins out of this really nobody wins out of this and it's you know sadly it's down to uh, so many different causes in this case a lot of uh, a lot of it's down to drug addiction mm. um, and it's you know it's one of the reasons we've got to be very very clear that crime uh, in many areas affects uh, much wider than just the individual who's who seems to be affected initially. Of course. Tom, thank you very much indeed for taking the time to talk to us. Tom Tugendhat, Tory MP for Tunbridge and Morling, Chair of the Foreign Affairs Select Committee. Uh, he's also uh, introducing a, a 10-minute rule bill uh, coming up tomorrow uh, to try and extend the times that people who with, with, uh, with who beat their children and, 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 to, uh, and abuse their children in such a terrible way uh, that they do them so much damage that they should be getting longer sentences. More blasted rhetoric from the Banana Republic for people who think Capital punishment isn't going nearly far enough. <laughs> the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Independent Republican Mike Graham. You can tweet us at Talk Radio, uh, which is what Jack has, uh, Jake has done. He says, the one refinement I would make to what Tom Tugendhat is saying about Commonwealth soldiers is that it is not merely a case of people not being allowed to live with their family. It is a matter of soldiers being able to live with their families in the country they serve. I think that's right. And Craig says, talking about Ofsted, why do they tell the schools when they're coming to inspect the school? Surely turning up at random would give a more realistic inspection. Well, I suppose it might, but the, the schools and Ofsted would probably say... Uh, Actually, that's not really fair because you might 
come a, come upon the school which is having a particularly bad day when certain teachers might be off and I think it's fair enough to let them prepare for it. Uh, the problem for me is that it's not just about the school inspection. It's all about what the school does, the different kind of lessons that it teaches and the way that it teaches and the marks that it gives. So it's all a bit skewed really and I'm afraid they're all trying to make it look an awful lot better than it actually is. 0344 499 1000. We're going to talk to Professor Adam Hart in a moment about the plummeting number of insects. The Guardian is basically telling us the planet is going to come to an end very soon because all the insects are dying out. Let's go to Andy first though in Bristol who wants to talk about education. Hi Andy. Yeah and good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, yes uh, uh, schools uh, I've always felt that schools should run the same really as commerce and industry work mm. and, and that is with the hours so I was, I've always advocated I feel that they should start at the times are arbitrary but 8.30 in the morning hour and a half for lunch yeah to 4.30 in the afternoon. Okay. I, and I would think uh, over Christmas period, uh, a week off, uh, depending on when Christmas Day is. Yeah. And um, then the, uh, the spring break, Easter, a week. And then uh, three weeks in the summer. Yeah. And uh, bank holiday August, uh, a week maybe. But the thing is, that when the school finishes, that's it, no homework. Yes, I mean, I, I agree. I think they give out too much homework now, which is... I, which is, I agree. You know. and, they, and they should finish... They finish at four of whenever it is, and that's it. Uh, if, if, if for some reason members of staff have to go over the periods because of whatever outside activities... They should just be paid overtime for it, the same as anybody, as, as anybody in industry would be. Yeah, no, exactly right. And I think we could even take care of the homework situation. I mean, you could give uh, the pupils work to do outside of the classroom environment, but you could keep them in school to do it. For example, on a Friday afternoon, say from two to four, they could do the extra work that they've been set. Well, the thing is, is that, that uh, if, if they're spending time properly at school... Um, they can set they can set tasks for them to do over the um, over the uh, the evenings or their their break periods, but they needn't be examined on it. It's up to them to do the work. If if it teaches if after when they return to school or whatever, um, the teachers will know whether they've done any of the extra activities. But I don't see why teachers should be doing all this work after school. I mean, we wouldn't do it, would we? Well, no, of course not. That's the point. And, of course, uh, you're quite right to say that some of the, the summer holidays are a bit long, but I'm not sure if you could cut the holidays down, say, from, from whatever it is now, what is it, about 13 weeks or something, all told, uh, down to down to maybe seven. I, don't th I'm not, I, I think they need holiday breaks. I think kids do need to have some time away from school. Well, I would... In real life, that's not going to happen, is it? Especially at the okay, maybe primary and junior, as I in the old days it was called that. But certainly in their in their final education years, they have to understand where the book stops. And the trouble is, I feel that a lot of older students and and, and they're going into universities thinking that, that the world lives like they, it does at school, and it doesn't. In fact, universities need to sort themselves out with all this teaching business. 
it's you know we we have to work it's it's hard to work isn't it well it is there's too many teachers and not enough learners as my father would have said andy thank you very much indeed uh, that should uh, have no reflection whatsoever on what we're about to do which is to talk to professor uh, adam hart uh, who is an entomologist at the university of gloucestershire because according to the guardian this morning and they're calling it an exclusive by their environment editor damien carrington the world's insects are hurtling down the path to extinction threatening a catastrophic collapse of nature's ecosystems well i'm saying this right now Apart from bees, which everybody loves, I'm not really that keen on insects, and I wouldn't care if they disappeared off the face of the earth. Let's talk to Professor Hart and see if he agrees. Professor Adam, a very good uh, morning to you. Welcome. Good morning, thank you. Now, obviously, I'm being slightly tongue-in-cheek, saying that, you know, I want to get rid of all uh, insects. But to be honest, if I never saw another fly in my entire life, I don't think I would be in any way unhappy. Well, this is one of the great problems, isn't it? Um, They're they're not animals that many people feel particularly... (laughs) attached to or indeed really understand the diversity. I mean, I'll throw a number in for you. Um, Just in this country alone, there are 7,000 different types of flies. Really? Doing all kinds of of, of roles. And and that's really the crucial thing about insects. They are the linchpin of ecosystems. um, They feed on plants, which then, of course, um, provide food for birds. So, you know, there's primary food really for an awful lot of, of, of more charismatic species but they have an awful lot of different interactions they're, they're predators they're prey they're parasites they're involved in structuring ecosystems they've got relationships with plants we barely even understand of course we know that they're extremely important pollinators as well so really they've got their fingers in all the pies of, of ecology and when you start removing one or two of them the whole thing can break down which is of course one of the big problems that we we may face certainly according to the guardian this morning no right and is there not the case though that we're getting new species species of these things kind of emerging from time to time so that while some species may be dying out there may be others kind of we haven't yet discovered them but but are actually out there um, yes, it's absolutely true. And with insects particularly, um, our, our discovery rate of, of new species is quite high because these things are quite small and, and often quite easy to overlook. Of mm. course, those, that we haven't yet discovered them doesn't mean that they're not out there. They're out there doing important things. We're just not aware of them. Um, the key point about an extinction event, which is what, what um, the, the sort of uh, the, the, the sway of this, um, of this article is, is that... that species are disappearing at a far greater rate than they're being um, created, that speciation is coming about. So really what, what we're seeing now is is a destruction of ecosystems and, and a re- great reduction, not just in the number of insects, but in the number of different species of insects. And a really a large number of, or a very big proportion of those insects are now considered to be endangered, which is quite a concern really, particularly given, as, as you yourself said, of course, most people aren't that um, aren't that stimulated by insects. Most people aren't that bothered by them, if you like. And in fact, they're incredibly important. No, right. I mean, according to this study, which is in the Biological Con- Conservation Journal, apparently, uh, they're saying that urbanisation is to blame as much as climate change and, and the use of pesticides. Um, so it doesn't sound as though this is going to be reversible anytime soon. No, these are the main problems. We've got intensive agriculture, which, of course, uses land and uses land in a very um, specific way, in a way that's not particularly wildlife friendly. But on top of that, you're using insecticides, pesticides, but predominantly we're talking about insecticides on that land to produce more crops. On top of that, we've got urbanisation, we've got um, habitat loss for other reasons, and we've got climate change kind of underpinning everything. So, yes, I mean, the, the basic essence of the story is if we don't change the way that we go about our food production and if we don't change the way that we are looking after the environment, what we're going to see is this almost silent extinction event that we're not noticing because it only, in inverted commas, involves insects. It's not involving more charismatic animals. And as those insects are whittled away, that whittling away will have severe 
knock-on consequences through the ecosystem, and by the time that happens, it will be too late for us to do anything about it. That's really the concern at the moment. And I suppose we're talking about not just flies, because we're not obviously we think about flies as insects, but presumably we're talking about beetles and and uh, and uh, ants and all kinds of yeah, things that don't actually fly in the air. Absolutely, the, the whole lot. I mean, insects are the most diverse group of, of organisms on the planet. Um, it's absolutely mind-boggling, <laughs> their diversity. Um, well over a million species without, without even um, drawing breath. I mean, yeah, as I said earlier, there's, there's more species of fly in this country than yeah. there are mammals in the entire world mm. by quite a comfortable majority. Right. 400, 500 odd thousand species of beetles, and all of these things have an ecological niche and an interaction with with prey um, below them, with predators above them, with plants, with with our crop plants. Of course, we, you mentioned bees earlier; they're a, a well-known pollinator. Although um, beetles pollinate, so do butterflies and moths. And then you've got all the aquatic insects, which provide food for fish, which of course enter our food chain. So the whole thing is really very, very much tied in. I mean, that's the essence of ecology. Everything is really interacting with each other and, and interlinked. And, and it's insects that are the sort of glue that holds that whole mm. thing together. And what about mosquitoes? Surely we could do without them. <laughs> well, here's the thing about mosquitoes. Yes, they're a bit of a nuisance to us, but they are incredibly important in their lar- larval stage, which are in the water, are incredibly important parts of the food chain in, in all of the aquatic systems of the world, really, or certainly in the warmer parts of the world, because they provide food for very small fish and tadpoles, which provide food for larger things and eventually for us and for all kinds of birds and mammals. So, so yes, we could probably do without mosquitoes flying around and bothering us, but the reality <laughs> is they're incredible. Well, we can, certainly do with, we can certainly do without them some, somehow morphing into um, uh, creatures which are impervious to any kind of uh, malaria pills that people give you to take when you travel to Africa and then they give you malaria anyway. Well, there's some very interesting research actually that's being done on, on mosquitoes and there's a, there's a, a genetic um, a mutation that's been introduced into them that allows them to be in the environment as larvae and as pupae doing no harm to us and feeding fish but when they try and pupate and turn into the adult it basically freezes them and they can't they can't perform that final thing so we still get the bonus of the mosquitoes being in the environment but we don't have them flying around and you know those sorts of things are, that's exactly the sort of high-tech intervention that we're going to start needing to see and we're going to start needing to see the way that we you know change the way that we go about growing our food we're going to have to change from our current practices because the simple fact is and data are really now overwhelming that that what we are doing to the land is having serious effects to, on, those, on those invertebrates, on those insects in particular, and that will have very serious consequences for us in, in the, the not-that-distant future. Yeah. I mean, there's not much anybody can do, is there, in terms of just sort of doing something in your garden to encourage insects to, to hang out there more or something? Well, look, individually, we can all do something. Um, you can certainly do something in, in any land that you're the steward of, whether it's a window box or, yeah. or a big garden, to, to make it more invertebrate-friendly. And there's mm. lots of flowers and plants you can plant and lots of habitat things you can put down. But, of course, the biggest factor in this is global agriculture, intensive yeah. agriculture, pesticide use and so on, and the way that those things are done. Sometimes I think that's one of the problems with environmental issues. It feels a bit like it's too big a mountain for any one person to climb. But public pressure and public engagement with the fact that this is happening will put pressure on politicians and hopefully will provoke some sort of change but yes it is it is a concern that people feel that they're a bit helpless and and that's when they understand the problem which of course a lot of people either don't or don't particularly want to because they're not lions and tigers and, and elephants you know these these animals are not animals which we have a great deal of connection with often
No, quite. Uh, thank you very much indeed, Professor Adam Hart there, uh, entomologist at the University of Gloucestershire, uh, with a very interesting and uh, very well-reasoned argument as to why we need insects and why I'm wrong uh, to want to be see the death of flies and to see the death of all flies and never see another one uh, in my life. They're really horrible creatures, aren't they? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio via DAB, online or via the Talk Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.